Australians go to the polls in the next week to decide if they want a Kevin Rudd-led government or one with Tony Abbott as leader. This Radio New Zealand Insight asks what voters see as the key issues and is it policy or personality that matters most. Our nation faces many new challenges and I know for sure that the old politics of negativity just won't work. We're a nation of just Hello, I'm Tony Abbott. To compete, Your opinion counts, so my team has travelled throughout Australia listening to your concerns and your hopes. You've asked for a plan and we've consulted... We did better than practically all other countries through the GFC. But now with the China mining boom receding, we need a new way to drive the economy forward. A million more jobs over the next decade and better services for you and your family. During head-to-head campaign debates, the two leaders set out their policies. At this forum, a coin toss won the Prime Minister Kevin Rudd the first speaker slot. So what do I stand for? I'm passionate about how we build Australia's future. I'm in the building business. And that means that for us, building and helping to build the new industries, the new jobs, the new opportunities for the future is what it's all about. Because I want to make sure that you and you have good jobs in the future and any kids you might have. Second thing I'm passionate about is how do we make sure we have a first-class education system, in fact the best in the world. Because all of you want to make sure that your kids are going to have the most first-class education possible so they don't fall behind kids who are growing up today being educated in the schools of Asia. Number three, you want to make sure, and I want to make sure, that we build a world-class health system and keep it there. Then it was Liberal leader Tony Abbott's turn. What I'm going to try to do, what I will do, is grow a stronger economy so that everyone can get ahead. Uh, We'll scrap the carbon tax because that's going to be good for everyone's cost of living. Uh, We'll get the budget back under control by ending the waste. We'll stop the boats. And you know, I'd like to be known, should I win the election, as an infrastructure prime minister. So we'll build the roads of the 21st century. Now, like Mr Rudd, I think we're a great people and a great country. I just don't think we can afford another three years like the last six. A record 1,717 candidates are standing in this election. Nearly 15 million voters in Australia have less than a week to make up their minds about who to select. I'm Philippa Tolley, and this insight considers the options facing Australians. The Australian Prime Minister Kevin Rudd has called a general election for September the 7th, six weeks after he toppled former leader Julia Gillard in a party room vote. He made the announcement after calling on the Governor-General in Canberra. You, the Australian people, know me pretty well, warts and all. I would be deeply honoured to serve you, the Australian people and our country, into the future. The previous Prime Minister, Julia Gillard, had already called an election for September the 14th. Kevin Rudd brought the date forward a week shortly after ousting Miss Gillard, ending long-festering turmoil and division within the Australian Labour Party. That turmoil had its roots three years earlier when Ms Gillard became Australia's first woman Prime Minister by toppling Mr Rudd. I asked my colleagues to make a leadership change. A change because I believed that a good government was losing its way. His 2010 demise appeared to take Mr Rudd by surprise. Emotions surfaced during his farewell speech as he noted his proudest achievements as Labour Prime Minister, especially the apology to the stolen generations, the Indigenous children taking from their parents to be raised in white families. 
What I remember most about it, for those of you who weren't here, was as the stolen generations came in from over there, they were frightened. Our job was to make them welcome. The apology was unfinished business for our nation. Mr Rudd's resentment over his ousting was apparent in following years and he was frequently accused of leaking information and undermining Julia Gillard's leadership. Despite that, the Gillard-led Labour Party won the 2010 elections, albeit with a minority. Three years on, with opinion polls predicting electoral disaster for Labour, it was Julia Gillard's turn to face the chop. Three years ago, I had the very great honour of being elected as Labour leader. This privilege was truly humbling. I thank the Australian Labor Party for that privilege and I thank the Australian people for their support. When I first put myself forward for consideration as Labor leader in 2010, I had the overwhelming support of my colleagues to do so. I thank them for that. And I thank them for giving the opportunity not only to, to me, not only to serve the nation, but to serve as the first female Prime Minister of this country. Reinstated as Prime Minister, Mr Rudd praised the woman he had just deposed. She is a woman of extraordinary intelligence, of great strength, and great energy. All of you here in the National Press Gallery and across the nation would recognise those formidable attributes in her. And I know them, having worked with her closely for some years. Mr Rudd's second term at the helm provided an immediate surge of public support for Labour, pushing it close to level pegging with the Liberal Party and Tony Abbott. While Labour supporters started to drop again, what counts is the choice voters make on Saturday. Australia has a preferential voting system for its 150-seat House of Representatives and, as an associate professor at Auckland University, Jennifer Curtin explains, it's very different to New Zealand's MMP system. They still have a system that's not unlike first-past-the-post where they have a ballot paper and they get to choose one member from an electorate. But instead of just ticking one member or, or having one choice, they get to rank their candidates in order of preference. So they can go one Green, two Labour, three Liberal, four Independent and so on. And what happens is, is that... All the first preferences are counted, and if no one candidate has received 50% of the vote, then the papers, all the bottom-ranked candidates' uh, papers are taken out and recounted their second most favourite candidate. And this process of counting keeps going until one candidate wins with 50% plus one of the vote. So it's not proportional in the sense that we don't see an outcome like we see in New Zealand where if the Liberals were to win 40% of the vote that they would then get 40% of the seats. So it doesn't work like a proportional system at all. Basically, it's still like New Zealand worked before we got MMP, which was the party with the majority of the seats gets to have first choice of forming the government, which is usually a majority government. After the 2010 election, Australia was left with a hung parliament and Julia Gillard was only able to govern after securing the backing of the Greens and independents.
In this election, along with voting for a federal lower house, the House of Representatives, Australians will also select candidates for half of the 76-seat upper house or Senate. Jennifer Curtin says the Senate has a different voting system. They have a proportional system that operates for their Senate and so there we do see the presence of the Greens, quite often some independents or other minor parties. They used to have a party called the Democrats which was like a centre party and so we do see see a balance between this sort of first-past-the-post model or equivalent, we'd call it a majoritarian model in the lower house and then a proportional model in the upper house around 95 to 97% will will fill out a valid paper. But what people do when they fill out that ballot paper is they can either vote for the party they prefer and not worry about listing their candidates in order of choice. So they'll vote what's called above the line. Most people do that, around 80 to 90%. But those who vote below the line, if you don't fill out all the boxes one to, say, 253 in the right order, then your vote becomes invalid. A political scientist from Melbourne's Swinburne University, Professor Brian Costa, says if a voter chooses to vote above the line, they agree to follow the selections made by their party. But he says this election will pose particular problems with the second voting option. You can, if you wish, go below the line and sequentially fill in all the squares. Now, what we've had in Australia in the last few months, and this isn't an accident and it's not an outburst of democratic participation either, we have had an avalanche of registration of micro-political parties, some with very bizarre names and obscure backgrounds, so much so that the Senate ballot paper now for New South Wales at the last election was a metre wide. That is the maximum size that you can print a ballot paper for technical printing reasons that I don't quite understand. Now, this means, of course, that you've got almost double the number of parties registered as you had in 2010. So all these people are going to have to be fitted onto the ballot paper. What they're going to have to do is reduce the font size to a size so small that people who want to vote below the line in New South Wales, Victoria and Queensland are going to be provided with magnifying frames so that they can read the ballot paper. At the moment, the Liberal National Coalition holds 34 seats in the Senate and Labor 31. The Greens hold the balance of power with nine seats. Another electoral difference compared with New Zealand is that voting is compulsory in Australia. If you do not vote and do not have a valid reason, then you're fined. So what drives voting in Australia? Obligation, policy, party loyalty or the leaders? What I'm passionate about is how you build the future, not how you cut for the future. What I'm passionate about is how we build the new jobs and new industries of the future because the world's changing out there. And how we build the best schools in the future so that your kids can become the techno wizards of the future and to have a world-class health system. That's what I'm committed to. That's the Australia I want to build. I want to lead a competent, trustworthy government. I was a competent and trustworthy member, a senior member, of a competent and trustworthy government in the past, and that's what I want to be in the future. That's what my strong team, my strong united team, want to deliver to the Australian people in the future. Professor Costa has studied the electoral significance of policy versus leadership. 
He says despite what politicians, political advisers and much of the media suggest, the link between leadership and election results is not that close. If you look at the research that's done on that, uh, leadership is not the uh, dominant driver uh, of electoral choice in Australia. It's uh, policy issues, that is electors' perception of the party's position on various policies, that's the key driver. Uh, and the second driver is the general attitude of people to the political party. So party identification still matters in Australia. Um, it matters less than it used to, but it matters less in terms of intensity rather than people have totally uh, abandoned the parties. They haven't. It's just that they're not as uh, passionate about uh, their party of choice as they were, let's say, 30 years ago. Um, so really, leadership is is not the big driver that uh, the political class, if we can call them that, uh, think it is. But that doesn't have any impact if you just have a look at the media coverage of the Australian election at the moment. It's almost nothing other than about leader, leader, leader. Brian Costa also argues that political campaigns now focus more on personality. Now that of course is a subset of the general cult of celebrity that we've seen growing up uh, over the last uh, years where you have, you know, I'm not just talking, I'm certainly not talking politics, but people who used to be film stars but now are stars of something but we're never quite sure what, you know, the Paris Hilton um, phenomenon. I mean, we're told that Paris Hilton is a celebrity uh, and she's a personality. Well, but what is she? And I think that sort of shallowness is having an impact uh, across into uh, political campaigning. And probably the, the, the groups of people who, are, who consume that sort of uh, what you might call celebrity culture are probably transferring it across to their political leaders as well. Professor Costa says the two leaders share one problem in this election. Mr Abbott is not popular. He's never been popular. It's not as though we, we've got one super popular leader in Mr Abbott and a mildly popular one in Mr Rudd and a very unpopular one in Ms Gillard. They're all equally unpopular. As the election campaign unfolds, past issues that have dogged both leaders' political careers are re-emerging. Kevin Rudd's reputation for poorly treating people behind the scenes has resurfaced after the makeup artist who prepared Mr Rudd and Mr Abbott for the leaders' debate in Brisbane took to Facebook to voice her opinion. One of them was absolutely lovely, engaged in genuine conversation with me, acknowledged that I had a job to do and was very appreciative. The other did the exact opposite. That other was Mr Rudd. Her post added to previous revelations that he'd lost his temper over meals on planes, unavailable hair dryers, or the wording of a statement he was recording for television. This language, it just complicates it so much, you know? How can anyone do this? On the other hand, Mr Abbott is widely regarded as prone to making gaffes, such as the stumble when describing Kevin Rudd's style. No one, however smart, however well-educated, however well-experienced, is a suppository of all wisdom. Early in the election campaign, Mr Abbott was criticised as old-fashioned and sexist after describing two women liberal politicians as young, feisty and with sex appeal. Mr Abbott has also been challenged in Parliament over his attitude to women by the previous Labour leader, Julia Gillard. I was very offended personally when the Leader of the Opposition as Minister for Health said, and I quote, 
abortion is the easy way out. I was also very offended on behalf of the women of Australia when in the course of this carbon pricing campaign the Leader of the Opposition said what the housewives of Australia need to understand as they do the ironing. Thank you for that painting of women's roles in modern Australia. And then, of course, I was offended too by the sexism, by the misogyny of the Leader of the Opposition catcalling across this table at me as I sit here as Prime Minister. If the Prime Minister wants to, politically speaking, make an honest woman of herself, something that would never have been said to any man sitting in this chair. I was offended when the Leader of the Opposition went outside in the front of Parliament and stood next to a sign that said, Ditch the Witch. I was offended when the Leader of the Opposition stood next to a sign that described me as a man's bitch. I was offended by those things. An associate professor at Perth's Murdoch University, Nairi Donoghue, is a social psychologist working on gender issues. She says while Julia Gillard's speech was initially seen as risky by even acknowledging sexist attacks, it became celebrated because it recognised an issue many women experience. However, Nairi Donoghue says while highlighting sexism was successful once, it's not something Labor can do again. It's a don't-mention-the-war kind of situation, I think, and, and any allegations of sexism or, or discussion of sexism just invites analysis of what happened to Julia Gillard and the way that she was treated not only in the media and by the opposition, but by members of her own party. Having said that, I think the debate has changed with the presence of the two male leaders, and there is much more of a sense, I guess, that there are less no-go zones, that there is less that's off-limits, and that the cut and thrust of election campaigns can be attended to without concern about how it might look. Professor Donoghue says that while what is called Tony Abbott's woman problem has faded now he's facing Kevin Rudd rather than Julia Gillard, it's not disappeared altogether. Many commentators have noted Mr Abbott's extensive use of his daughters in his election campaign, suggesting a deliberate ploy that their presence might change his fortune among female voters. While struggling to increase its appeal to women voters, the Liberal Party is also trying to claim its Labour opponent remains divided. Dysfunction, Paralysis. sabotage, chaos, contempt, appalled, very bad behaviour, undermined, very difficult, deeply flawed, leaked, inability, poll driven, absolutely outraged, own backyard, increasingly erratic, lost confidence, destabilised government, bickering and destabilisation, or shut up, undermining, chaos, manipulating something, band of prima donnas, stealth, dysfunction, 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 dysfunction. Meanwhile, Labor's election ads question if the Liberals can be trusted. What are you hiding, Mr Abbott? I remember when you were really aggressive, negative, angry about everything. Now you've just gone quiet. Talk about all the money you want to save. So what are you going to cut? Schools? The hospital's already stretched. What jobs are you going to cut? Teachers? Nurses? I just feel like you're hiding things. And I get the feeling that if you win, we lose. While attacks on a rival's performance are inevitable, how much focus is there on policy? Professor Costa says polls indicate voters are concerned about three key issues. They were uh, health, economic management and education. They ranked, people ranked them in the 70s, that is 70% of those polled or 70 bit more than that were saying um, 
they're, they're the important issues to us. Then there was an enormous drop down to other issues like immigration and asylum seekers. Again, a strange result because if you look at the Australian media, um, the, if there is an issue dominating it, it's asylum seekers, but the, the voters don't um, believe that. And then leadership came, came, I think, seventh in the list. But the gap between the top three of health, education and economic management and the next cluster was about 20 percentage points. So there was a clear difference. But a political historian at Melbourne's Deakin University, Jeff Robinson, feels both leaders are failing to provide a vision for the future. We have arguments about the level of government debt in Australia, which is really very low by international standards, but issues, say, around the actual depreciation and sense of our natural assets, you know, in terms of soil degradation, the likely long-term impacts of climate change and so on on the Australian economy are really, in a sense, not something that politicians talk about. And it's interesting, even though that the government implemented a system of carbon pricing, they've actually been rather reluctant, in a sense, to defend that. Having implemented it, then spent a lot of time talking about the wonderful compensation package they've developed, rather perhaps than actually trying to link this to you know, longer-term concerns about the viability of the economy. You know, for example, if the Great Barrier Reef was damaged by climate change, that's going to have a disastrous impact on the Australian tourism industry, for example. Jeff Robinson thinks the 2013 election is being fought in the middle ground. Balancing the sense of fairly pragmatic electorate, an electorate that grumbles about the cost of living, electricity prices, that tends to blame carbon pricings for that, um, which actually seems to be an overstatement. You know, an electorate which worries about government debt and budget deficits, but on the other hand, you know, an electorate which likes government services and wants government services. So both perhaps of the major political parties are tracking to the centre, I think, on economic issues. And it's, in a sense, you can even say perhaps that the coalition has sort of tried to pick up on some of Labor's rhetoric on economic issues, you know, saying, you know, we're for more health and education expenditure and so on. You know, we agree with the Labor Party on this. But of course, on sort of social issues, in particular on asylum seeker policy, of course, both parties have moved to the right, which is where I think public opinion is. And the Labor Party, to a degree, has, has very much fallen in behind the coalition in terms of taking a much tougher position on that issue than it used to do so. This pragmatism even extends to the voting booth, as Auckland University's Jennifer Curtin explains. All parties, well especially the majors and the minors, maybe not all the micros, are allowed to produce these things called how-to-vote cards. Now, as a New Zealander, when I went and lived in Australia, I found it a complete anathema to be walking up to a polling booth and have people be giving me all this paraphernalia telling me how I should vote, which is essentially what these cards do. Um, but it's allowable because of the complexity of the system. And a lot of voters rely on those how to vote cards. So what we have to remember about Australians, which is not unlike New Zealand, is that 70% of voters or thereabouts are still party identifiers. So they will still tend to vote for their the party of that they've always voted for. There's probably only around 30% swing voters. So a lot of voters will trust their party's how-to-vote card. Political parties are targeting those swing voters who mainly live in metropolitan areas. However, the Liberals' main coalition partner, the National Party, is wooing country voters, stressing stronger regional economies and prosperous rural communities. Just because you don't live in big cities doesn't mean your voice won't be heard Together you are the majority Speak as one and you can change your world
But while many see the key to election victory is in winning marginal seats in areas such as Western Sydney, political historian Jeff Robinson says the seats regarded as at risk have changed from one election to another. It's interesting that some formerly safe Labor seats in Sydney, perhaps seats to a degree that the Labor Party tended to neglect because they just regarded them as, be, as being safe Labor seats, often with a high population of non-English-speaking background migrants, that some of those seats are seats that Labor actually seems to be in a lot of trouble. So maybe one of the lessons for this campaign is that if parties just play to marginal seats, which I think um, Australian Labor has had a fairly strong tradition of doing, that can potentially cause problems among your traditional supporters. At Sydney University, an associate professor in the Department of Government and International Relations, Rodney Smith, is another who thinks it would be prudent to campaign further afield than just Sydney and Brisbane. One characteristic of this election is that uh, a party that concentrates just on one area is not going to do terribly well overall because both the Labor Party and, for that matter, the Liberal and National parties have marginal seats across all, pretty much all the states and in different regions in those states. And the other feature of Australian elections over the past decade or so is that the definition of marginality has really become less conservative. So in the past, if you were sitting on a margin of maybe 6%, 7%, you'd be perfectly happy, whereas these days uh, that sort of margin may still see you lose your seat if you're not on the ball. Rodney Smith says many of the swing seats are on city outskirts, where infrastructure has not kept pace with growing populations and new housing developments. He says while those suburbs are multicultural, residents have strong opinions on asylum seekers. We've seen a fairly long-term trend in Australian politics that uh, you know the, the immigrant communities that are already here tend to look down on new arrivals. And, it, and they do that for a mixture of reasons, of course. And one of them is the sort of perceived threat to, to jobs and, and the perceived instability. So that if I've been here in the community and somebody else new is coming and they're, they're somewhat different, then that seems to produce uh, tension. At the same time, these are by and large very stable, you know, calm suburbs to live in. So it doesn't play out so much on a kind of a day-to-day political level, but it does play out very strongly on the policy level and, and when people focus their attention on who they're going to vote for. So the major parties in particular have been very keen to campaign in these seats and to demonstrate their commitment to what they call securing Australia's borders. In less than a week, Australia goes to the polls, but Jeff Robinson says whatever the result, voters are unlikely to feel they're on the verge of a new and exciting chapter in Australian history. If Labor did manage to pull a victory off, they would be believed and euphoric, perhaps that Tony Abbott had been defeated. If Tony Abbott wins the election, I think Liberal Party true believers will be excited, but more excited perhaps by the fact that they were able to get rid of Labor than anything else. So I think whoever wins the election perhaps is probably, I think, going to face a fairly rocky road with a fairly sceptical electorate. With your support, we will deliver a strong, diverse economy and a safe, secure Australia so that every Australian can get a better future. I believe we can meet any challenge the world throws at us, but it means we need a better way, a smarter way, a new way to secure Australia's future. I'm Philippa Tolley and that's Insight for this week. If you'd like to contact us, you can send an email to insight at radionz.co.nz or send us a tweet at rnz underscore insight. I wrote and presented that program. It was produced by Don Rood with technical production by Steve Burridge.